Well, good morning, friends. It is sunny today. It is good to share God's word with you. My name is Tracy Bianchi. I serve as uh, the teaching, one of the teaching pastors here at our Oak Brook location, and we are now in week three of an adventure through the book of Daniel. And last week, when we left Daniel, we were in the palace. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream that was troublesome. And Daniel, among all the people in the kingdom, was able to interpret that dream. And so he stepped forward and he said, I know how to put your anxiety and your fears, king, to rest. I can interpret that dream for you. And so the king was so thankful that someone could make sense of this troubling dream that he had, that he put Daniel and Daniel's three friends, and if you've ever gone to vacation Bible school, you probably know their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he puts Daniel and these three guys in places of authority. The king says to Daniel, I'm going to put you in charge, and he says, can I bring my three friends with? And the king says, fine, go ahead, bring them with. So then we find ourselves today at the beginning of Daniel chapter three where the king is trying to outrun the dream because the dream was of a statue that was descending in value made of mixed metals. The head was gold and the body bronze and then it turned into iron and the legs and then ultimately the feet were told were made of partially baked clay. And a giant boulder comes in his dream and crushes the feet of the statue and topples the statue. And Daniel says, that's an indication that your power will one day end. And that the king after you and the king after you and the king after you, their power will one day end too. And basically for all of human history, eventually, every kingdom, every empire falls until one day all that is left is the empire, the kingdom of God. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really like hearing, as most leaders do, that, well, I don't like my power leaving me, so I'm going to try to work against this. And so we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 3 as he tries to create a statue that will not topple. King Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, which is about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And he set it up, this solid gold statue, on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then he summoned the satraps and the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he has set up. Because what would be the point, of course, of building a massive statue if no one came to see it? Here's an interesting note. We don't know what this statue is made of. That's on purpose, that's by design, because it wasn't worth even giving it mention in our scriptures. Was it of Nebuchadnezzar? Was it of his wife or one of their other gods? We don't know, it's not significant. But he gathers then the whole community to pay homage to this idol he built. We read that the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. Refusing to worship is now considered an act of treason. The manipulation of religion for political gain has a long history. Merging spiritual allegiance with national allegiance turns out is not a trick of our times. Now imagine for a moment then, if you would, that you are one of these three young men. Daniel does not appear in this story. Interestingly, it's these three men. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago we talked about who they were. They were originally Jewish men, young Jewish men, who had been taken from their native Jerusalem and plopped into servitude of this new king. They were considered Jewish royalty. They came from the palaces of their home country. And now here they are in a foreign land, trying to find their way, suddenly now taken out of one of a multitude of servants in the royal household. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had said, actually, when he sieged Jerusalem, he said, I would like to take all of the young men who were in service to the king of Jerusalem, and I'm going to put them into servitude to me. So the household is filled with, with tons of these boys, just like these three, only now because of Daniel, they're in places of leadership. And they find themselves suddenly standing in this scene. As soon as you hear the sound of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold. Do you wonder for a moment what their conversations might have been like? I mean, here they are, shuffled out with thousands of other people into the field. Okay, let's see what's happening. Oh, there's an idol over there. You know, what do we, what do, we do with this? And suddenly the music plays and everybody starts to bow and they're like, huh, <laughs> what do we do? At the sound of the horn, we're supposed, to, we're supposed to kneel? Are we doing this? Psst, Shadrach, are we doing this? I mean, this is crazy, am I right? This is not our God. Oh, there's this first commandment about thou shalt not have any other idols. <gasps> I mean, did, their, did they kind of like bend a little bit? I mean, I'm sure, to be fair, they probably considered it. It's like, oh, this would be so much easier. Everybody else is bowing down, and we don't want to make a thing. We're new here in town. We're new to leadership. Did they try to kind of make their way through, through the crowd and go a different direction? We have moments, perhaps, a little bit like this. Of course, it's probably not a giant gold statue, but we have moments that come up in our culture, in our lives, where we think to ourselves, oh, do I bow down to what everybody else is doing, the idols that plague our time? I mean, how do I, how do I sneak out of this party, or this place, or this moment, or do, I, do, we, do we run out the back before the cops come? Do I switch seats? papers, pencils before the teacher comes back in the room? And am I the only one on this email thread in this work group that thinks this decision's a little unethical? I mean, are we, is this what we're supposed to be talking about? It's not that much money. What's a little decimal point here or there? I mean, no one's going to notice. They don't need the money anyway, so if we keep a little extra for ourselves or don't, you know, do what we're supposed to with it. No one's going to Notice, and why is everyone else posting or texting their assent to 
something that is unethical or wrong, and do I pull my post down? Do I say something against it? Do I stand up? Do I stand out? If we're honest, it's so much easier to bend sometimes. Everyone else is bending. Let's just, let's do this bend and then let's get on with our day. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves literally standing in the middle of a field at this dedication service that was filled with thousands of people, probably not unlike the celebrations for the Stanley Cup or the World Series. If you think of the the pictures of Grant Park when we celebrated those victories here in this town, some of you might have been there, right? So there are thousands of people or like music festival, an inauguration. I mean, this is the sort of scene. And to be honest, it's probably unlikely that Nebuchadnezzar would have actually seen that the three of them didn't stand because the stage in these situations is so far away. The idol may have been way down the field and Nebuchadnezzar probably wasn't sitting on some perch where he saw directly at them. To be clear, he was probably perched quite high, but the odds of him seeing them, it would just be like if you were in a crowd and a couple people around you did something different except for the fact that there were some friends that had their eyes on the political appointments that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had just received. So scripture says at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews, these Jewish men. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, oh, may the king live forever but there are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods. I don't know if you've noticed, but they don't worship the image of gold that you've set up. It's interesting, these astrologers are the same social class, the same professional class of men that Daniel actually rescued just a few chapters earlier when Nebuchadnezzar could not get his dream interpreted, he ordered everyone from this professional class to be beheaded because he couldn't figure out why they couldn't help him. And Daniel stepped forward and says, ah, you don't have to kill everybody. I can interpret your dream. You would think as a favor, those men might have remembered this, but for political gain, they kind of shove these boys forward to the front of the scene. This would have likely gone unnoticed were it not for this moment. And furious with rage, scripture says, Nebuchadnezzar summons them. And these men were brought before the king. The king says to them, is it true? Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, then very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then, (laughs) what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, interestingly, the king does not act on hearsay. He instead brings the three men in and actually asks them the question, almost as if giving them another chance. Is it true, he says to them, is it true you worship different God. Is it true? How many times has a question like this haunted people of faith? Think of Peter. 
that servant girl in the garden. They're gathered around the fire that night. Jesus is betrayed and warming their hands. And this girl says, hey, to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Is it true? What does Peter do? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. Three times he says, no, it's not true. I am not going to stand up in that field. Maybe the question of our time occasionally goes like this. Is it true you're a Christian? Is it true you go to, you go to that big church on the corner of York and 31st? Is it true that you like follow Jesus? Do you actually read the Bible? Sometimes we might enjoy receiving that question because it gives us an opportunity to talk about our faith, but the struggle some of us have is that words like religion and Christianity and evangelical are tainted, they're manipulated, they've lost the, the, the tenacious, beautiful meaning they once had because they've been used for selfish gain. And so for some of us, this question might actually haunt us. I struggle when someone says, you're a pastor? Are you a Christian? And I think to myself, why are you asking? And what I want to know and what I want to say to them is, well, what has your experience been of people who fly under that banner? If you're asking me because you have run into judgmental, arrogant churchgoers who use Jesus as a way to justify their self-centered behavior, if you've met people who use the name of Jesus to inflate their own social and political agendas, if you're referring to the great wars and atrocities in human history that have been waged under the banner of Christendom, if you're putting me in the same category as religious crazy people who erect a 90-foot statue in the middle of the field and demand that we bow down, then no, I'm not that. And then I think, but if you're asking me if I follow the way of this sort of nondescript-looking, short, ruddy Jewish carpenter whose life ended in terror, whose passion was serving others and making room for those on the fringes, the man who upset the political and religious orders of his day, but who dismantled power for God's glory, not for his own personal gain. If you're asking me if I read the Bible, and if I believe in redemption and restoration and resurrection, then I want to say yes, that I believe. The former, we can logically and easily reject, most of us, we don't wanna be that. The latter we wanna say is true. But if we stand up in the middle of the field proclaiming the latter, we sometimes find that we've actually rejected that as well. Because if we want to actually follow the way of Jesus and actually give him the glory he is due, we would stand up and that standing up would require something of us. If we want to adopt the latter, it's easier to reject the former, but it's really hard to adopt the latter. Because I have to then do a self-inventory and realize that I'm really actually quite selfish and I have to purge my selfish desires and reject my own self-interests. I have to learn what it means to practice justice and mercy. I actually have to take the time and effort to see people 
and to help them become the people that God has called them to me. And honestly, it demands something of my life that I don't often feel like giving. And so sometimes it's so much easier to just start needling. We rarely in our time face the pointed question that these three men were asked. I mean, when we read this story, again, it's very easy for us to just VBS it and go, yes, when someone asks you if you follow Jesus, you say, yes, I do, and that's the end of the story. But let's be honest, in our culture today, half the people don't even care to ask that question anymore. They're at brunch right now, and we're at church, and they don't really care. So we're not going to get asked that question a lot, even though it may make us uncomfortable like we just discussed. It's not the question people are asking. So this story, if we look at it just at the surface, it doesn't apply to our lives today. So we have to begin to peel back and find out what is actually happening here and how is that relevant for our time because we are told that the word of God is relevant and true. It's as true today as it was the day this story was penned thousands of years ago. King Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, is addressed then by these boys. And they basically look at him and say, with all due respect, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace of God, we, the God we, if we, sorry, let's try that again. Woo, third time through, friends. All right, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. They remain respectful. They use his proper title. They give him some of the deference he is due, although I'm sure there's some mockery built into the your majesties. And they say, interestingly, we believe God's going to do this, but notice how they detach themselves from the outcome. We know God can do this, and we believe he will, but even if he doesn't, he's still God. Even if the outcome we desire, which would certainly be to live, it's okay these were men who grew up in a faith tradition and knew that God does not always give you what you want, this side of heaven. He does not always answer every prayer like this. He does not always rescue in every moment. And that does not mean he is not God. That does not mean he is not on the throne of heaven. It simply means that God had a different plan for how this was going to go down. And they give their worship to that plan and to that God. Even if this doesn't go our way, Nebuchadnezzar, we're good with this. We're still not bowing down to your idol. Walter Brueggemann, a famous theologian, writes this. He says, Nebuchadnezzar is at this time the only superpower left in this part of the world. He imagines himself at the center of the world. He's ready to impose his purpose by every coercive means necessary. Such a superpower can do a lot of good. Such an order can work out all right. You can get by. You can keep rolling with things that are unjust or wrong. It does work, except 
for this odd community of believers that had a first commandment in its craw. This odd rule of exclusivity that precludes signing on for any other loyalty. This community embodied by Shadrach and it, his friends has ringing in its ears. Thou shalt have no other God. This is the command of our lives too. Thou shalt have no other God. Bible says then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He completely overreacts and gets quite a bit dramatic. He orders the furnace heated up seven times hotter than usual, which is silly because fire is fire. You will die in a fire no matter how hot it is. But some of his strongest soldiers come and they tie these men up and they throw them into the blazing furnace. And we're told these men wearing their robes and their trousers and their turbans and their other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers that took them up there. They were disintegrated while these men are standing up there and we're told they are firmly tied and they fell into the blazing furnace. And then there's this great moment where King Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet in amazement and he says to his advisors, hey, weren't there three? Weren't there three men? Didn't we put three men in there? And he says, look, 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 I see four men walking around in the fire and they are unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come up out of the fire and all of these same leaders, the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the royal advisors, and they crowd around them. What is this phenomena? They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Like when you roast a marshmallow and you can smell it in your jacket for three days, that wasn't happening. Praise be, Nebuchadnezzar says, to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, the fourth man, and rescued his servants. And the story goes on to say that the king then commands all of Babylon to bow down and worship the God of the Bible. So what is the point of this story for today? Because when you leave here, odds are slim that there is a giant gold statue at the corner of York and Ogden and there will not be some trumpet sounding somewhere in your day that bows, that asks you to bow down to this idol. And it's very easy to simplify this story. So two quick things then to take away. The first is this, this is not a simple story. There is no formula for instant safety and success and comfort. There is no formula whereby if you do this, God is going to bring you 
success and comfort. When we believe that, we have then bowed down to the idols of success and comfort. Yes, in this story, God does choose to rescue these men in their lives on earth, this side of heaven. That is the outcome one of the outcomes of this narrative, but that is not meant to be indicative that any time we ask God to rescue us and we say, I stand up for you, Jesus, that he is going to make our lives easy. That does not happen. If you read scripture over and over again, you actually see that the opposite of that happens. And when we fall prey to that narrative, to that equation, We are practicing some really scary theology. And there are entire movements throughout history that have built up on this. If you do this, God will give you this. If you are faithful, God may choose to ease your suffering this side of heaven, or he may not. That does not mean he is not God. And that does not mean we shouldn't desire for his easing of our suffering, but we do not get what we want just because we do X, Y, and Z. That is not how God works. And the detached outcome that these men had is proof of that. If God chooses not to do this, I still believe that he is God. If you do not get what you have hoped God would give to you, do you still believe he is God? Or are you looking around then for another idol? There is no instant formula for success. First Peter interestingly says this, First Peter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at what? The fiery ordeal. I wonder if Peter had this story in mind. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Don't suffer because you're sinful and stupid. (laughs) He says, if you suffer as a Christian because of your worship of God, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So Peter, as we know, when he was asked, is it true, rejected Jesus, goes on later to become the rock by which the church of God is built. The tradition that we now hold today was established by Peter. Do you know how he was rewarded for that great faithful work? He was crucified upside down. How about Jesus? For the great faithful following of God's plan for his human body and his life here on earth. He was strung up on a cross, crucified, and scripture says he descended into hell for three days. His earthly life ended that way, and it wasn't until the other side of glory where he is resurrected and on the throne. There is no formula for a comfortable, easy life. And if we believe that, we find ourselves bowing instead to the gods of comfort and the idols of success. Second, we do not then 
bow to the idols of our time. Do not bow to the idols of our time. Now here's where the preacher says things that you've all heard before and we say things like, now the idols of our day are success, comfortable retirements, fancy looking kids, a beautiful Christmas card, a big home, maybe a, you know, a condo somewhere in Florida someday, I, I don't know, a scholarship to that fancy institution, lots of friends, of course, fabulous looking skin and a great wardrobe, whatever it is, right? We say these are the idols of our time and we preach against them and that is all true and we should preach against them. But I want to preach against one particular idol today that I think keeps us from easily rejecting the others. And that is the idol of distraction, of entertainment and distraction. You see, we are not standing on a field with this obvious choice of this gold statue or God. I wish sometimes it was that easy. We are in this sort of foggy field where you can barely see what the choices are because we've become so distracted with everything else. And in our story, the music doesn't play every now and then. It plays 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Because Facebook and Amazon and the news cycle and Twitter, they're all open 24 hours. And the music is playing constantly. And we don't even hear it anymore. Because we have given our attention and our affection to every little shiny thing that pops up instead of the God of the universe. And it's a slow sort of tilt and bend of our knees that happens over time and we don't even realize it. And then one day you kind of look up from your phone and you're face first in a field worshiping another God. We're colossally distracted. It's so much easier to just burn two hours on Instagram while you're watching the NFL this afternoon. Happens. I will be sitting on a couch this afternoon trying to see the Bears win. But if that's all I do, <laughs> I'm not honoring God with my life. C.S. Lewis talks about this in a book many of you may know called The Screwtape Letters authored interestingly in 1942, well before the iPhone. And we find in this story, for those who might not be familiar with it, that there is a senior demon named Screwtape who is writing to his junior nephew, Wormwood. And he's instructing his junior in the ways of keeping our attention and our affection away from God. He's basically instructing him in the ways of distraction. This is what the senior demon says to the junior about us. He says, you will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract their wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which they really like to keep them from their prayers or their work or their sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make them waste their time in conversations with those they care nothing about on subjects that bore them, you can make them do nothing at all for long periods so that at last they may say, whew, I now see that I've spent most of my life doing 
neither what I ought nor what I liked. He says, you can steal away a person's best years, not in some big, beautiful, sweet sin, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and it knows not why. And the gratification of curiosities so feeble that they are only half aware of them. It does not matter, he says, how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge them slowly away from the light and out into the nothing. And then Lewis famously writes this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Friends, this is more apt to explain our response to this ancient story. This is the field that we are on, shrouded in a dense fog and a malaise of distraction that has descended upon us and we don't even know where to give our attention. And God is asking us to pay attention and to see what he sees and to act the way he wants us to act. But if we're honest, most American Christians are more likely to know the names of celebrity children and who is in what upcoming film than they do the needs in their own community. Many of us follow our favorite brands and our favorite memes on Instagram or whatever, but we couldn't tell you what the refugee crisis is to save our lives. I'm preaching with you, not at you, although I'm preaching at you. You guys, my daughter's 11 years old. She can order a frappuccino like a boss. But I don't think she could tell you much about why people in our community and in surrounding communities sometimes don't have food on their table or why almost every community in this country has a food pantry. I'm not sure she could tell you that and why God cares very much for people and really not a lot about her frappuccino. I mean, we all know something's going on in Turkey and Syria and, oh, by the way, the south side of Chicago. And in the back of our mind, we may know there were people, men and women and families, huddled on park benches and in corners last night, homeless, in the pouring rain. What we, I, I don't know, what are we supposed to do about it? I mean, it's a big issue, right, we say. Or we say things like, it's so complicated. I, you know what, I, I just, I don't understand. I don't understand social systems and justice. I, yeah, I'll leave it to the experts. Or we might say, ooh, that's a thorny issue. There are some politics involved in that. Oh, let's just avoid that so we can all get along at Thanksgiving or whatever. I don't want to get involved. I mean, shouldn't we leave that to the experts? And when we say those things about the crises of our day, we begin to bend our knee and bow to the God of distraction. When we say something like, who am I to get involved? I wanna say, who are we not to get involved? 
These issues matter to Jesus. And if you don't know how to fix them, figure it out. We gotta figure this out. Or at least start praying for people. At least have these issues come to our minds and our hearts and prayers. And we're like, ah, I don't know. We, we are on the cusp of a new decade. In like eight weeks, it becomes 2020. We live in the modern era. We are in an age of brilliant technology. We have more power and opportunity in our thumbs than most people have had in all of human history. And we as American Christians are often going, oh, I don't know if I wanna get involved in that. We can't do that. So much easier to figure out which running back is injured on your fantasy team. And that's okay for a little while, but that cannot be the banner that you fly under forever or you are face first in the field and you didn't even realize it. So the invitation I have for us today that I believe is not just my invitation for us, but is what God is inviting us to, is to be very careful about how we bend to the idol of our time, the idol of distraction. Don't even notice you're doing it. And next thing you know, you're on the field. And Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world, he says. A town built on a hill, you can't be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl, scripture says. He goes, instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house which is to say it brings God's truth and justice and mercy and understanding to all of the dark places and the issues of our time so that we can not just stand for God, but we can stand with the people that God loves. And then when the whole world bows in the age of distraction, we can remain standing and honor our God with our hearts and our minds and our souls and let our light shine into all the places in this world that so desperately need to see it. Amen? All right, thumbs up. Let's do this. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you that you love us, that um, you have gifted us with the gift of discomfort and dis-ease. Lord, um, those are good places to be in, so if we're feeling a little fidgety this morning because maybe some things are true for us, Lord, would you help us address the distractions in our lives, Lord? Would you help us find the balance? Would you help us learn how to honor you, Lord, and care about what you care about so that we may remain standing faithful at the end of our days? In the name of Jesus, the church said, amen.